You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, a very special bonus episode celebrating Oppenheimer and the cinema of Chris Nolan, featuring Amnesiacs, Insomniacs, Batman, Dueling Magicians, Jokers, Dream Warriors, Bane, Spaceman, Brana, Time Travelers, and the most important thing to happen in the history of the fucking world. Another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, if I ask you nice, will you just call me Oppie for the whole episode? Absolutely. If you can't guess or didn't listen to the intro at all, we are talking about Oppenheimer today, the biggest fucking movie to happen in the longest time. Well, there's that, Barbie. Honestly, Barbenheimer. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we're just going to be one of a million podcasts currently out there talking about this film. But I mean, there's good reason. It feels like movies are back, baby. It's a fucking event. And almost in a weird way, like a, a rightfully timed rejection of the sort of movies that have dominated the box office for so long while we're watching even much to my dismay, a mission impossible entry kind of flounder at the box office and then get curb stomped by these two films and also almost get beat by fucking sound of freedom which is a different a different conversation that's a money laundering scheme (laughs) nobody can convince me otherwise (laughs) no it is i feel the same like um i i saw a friend post like this is basically christmas for cinephiles right that you have um and neither of us have seen barbie and i am excited to see it but that you have two films from like actual, like some sense of auteur, people with something with a voice to say, say something um, compared to the glut of like a really honestly pretty terrible year. Like the Marvel and DC output, even for Marvel and DC, has been not performing well and has been 
really bad. Like, even for their own standards, pretty fucking shitty. Well, and you also have Secret Invasion right now airing, and it seems like nobody's watching it. Yeah. And the finale just came this week like and was yeah. the worst rated um, Marvel installment of, like, anything, they say. It's just, it's weird because obviously they couldn't predict this when they scheduled these two films, but it happening right in the middle they're like massive success happening right in the middle of a WGA and actor strike. Yeah. It's weird. It's almost like the content in the theater is backing the arguments that are happening in the streets is that films nowadays should be auteur driven or at least, you know, have a very defined point of view and voice. Now the only real strike against this argument is one comes from Warner Brothers, who's fucking headed by David Zasloff. Who's a monster. Who's an absolute <laughs> monster and should be taken in the street and shot. Yeah. Oh, and um, Warner did, they did, they did Barbie. Yes, they and, did Barbie. Uni- well, because Universal uh, did, yeah. Chris Nolan famously jumped ship yeah. because of Tenet and because of uh, Warner Brothers partnering with HBO, not partnering. I mean, HBO is yeah. part of and discovery their, and all that shit. Yeah. Uh, their, you know, kind of platform and, and major corporation. But when they made the decision to basically dump, not dump, that's the wrong word, but release um, all of their major movies for the most part simultaneously on streaming as they did in the theaters because of, I mean, because of COVID. Right. But like Nolan was so fucking mad because Tenet was part of that, that he was like, you know what? Warner brothers go fuck yourself. I'm going to universal. Well, cause he wanted to do, he wanted to do what Cruz ended up doing with Maverick. It was that he had, the, he kept saying, I want to save movies. Like Tenet's the film to save movies. Maverick was the one that actually did it. And now it's cool that like you have um, Nolan back. This seems like, Oppenheimer's doing what he wanted to do with Tenet, you know, and the combination Oppenheimer and Barbie. And I hate to disappoint everybody listening to this, but we have zero opinions on Barbie. Yeah. Because neither one of us have seen it. We've spent all that time seeing Oppenheimer five times in a row. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I'm only, I've only seen it once at the press screening with you. I've done twice and I'm doing number three tomorrow. Jesus, so. you have that much time in your hands. I have zero. I yes. barely have time to record <laughs> podcasts anymore. <laughs> Let alone sit through let's, a three-hour yeah, Oliver Stone-style, <laughs> you know, epic that ends in a courtroom drama in black and white. But let's kind of use that uh, as a jumping-off point to go back in time. No pun intended. <laughs> Sorry uh, to talk about Memento. Yeah, uh, Christopher Nolan's first proper feature. I like to say, yeah, because like. You know, following is a feature. It runs feature length. It's on the Criterion Collection. But to me, that's almost like saying Crimes of the Future is David Cronenberg's first film. Right. Where everybody counts. Versus Shivers. Shivers, or They Came From Within. And to me, it's a weird comparison, but that's what Memento is. It's his They Came From Within. His, like, announcement of, like, um, you know, a new major voice, only unlike Cronenberg, like Nolan arrives pretty much fully formed. Yeah, I when this film came out, I remember I'd, I'd heard about it. Um, well, it, I want to talk about that a bit. Yeah, because it was 
it was not pre-internet, but it, I didn't really have access to internet that much. It was word of mouth. Um, and if you read like ain't it cool news or like chud.com, it was the, the very nascent stages of like even movie writing online. Yeah. And I remember, I think I heard about it. It was through like coming soon.net or something like that. You know, that was, that exactly, was on, yeah. and, and I remember renting it and I was, I think 16 and there couldn't have been a better movie for like wanting to be filmmaker Martin at 16. This joined the ranks of like usual suspects and pulp fiction at that time of like, this is what I want to do. Like this is a movie movie. It's like super heady. Um, I loved the conceit of going backwards. Um, I Everybody did. I watched it. I, my friend bought it. My friend Justin bought it for me for my birthday on DVD after we'd, I'd shown it to him. And then he, I watched it like once a week, just like kind of, and Rewatching it now, I will say it's lost a little bit of its its spark for me. Um, it's a tough hang on rewatch, especially uh, yeah. once you you know where it's going. But at the same time, the formal uh, component of it is so thrilling, and yes. the editing, and the way it's shot, and Guy Pierce, and also frankly that you're capturing a real moment in, in time. Because like you're saying, like you have Pulp Fiction. I mean, even going back a little bit more, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. You have Paul Thomas Anderson doing stuff like Hard Eight and Boogie Nights. You have Soderbergh in the mix kind of through his rebirth, yeah. you know, with Out of Sight in 97, I want to say. Yeah. It was like a real golden age for the crime film. And then you have like, you know, Todd Field coming out within the bedroom shortly thereafter. Like these were the movies that if you were, you know, a true cinephile in the 90s, or in our case, like a burgeoning cinephile and wannabe filmmaker, like, there's a reason we value the director and the writer and the artistic voices because we were raised in an era where movies weren't an announcement of talent or, like, a scouting report for talent to basically report to a... the next Marvel movie or the next Jurassic Park movie or whatever. It was just like, yo, have you seen this movie by this guy named Quentin Tarantino? Or yo, have you heard of this guy, Paul Thomas Anderson? Or yo, have you heard of fucking Chris Nolan and seen this memento film? But to your point too, it comes from a different time when like this movie made, it didn't make like a huge amount of money, but it made basically like 50 million, Yeah, but it was at a time and it was like, I think it was only four. It was even lower, but either way, it came at a time when like you didn't know everything about a movie and you were basically sold on it by like friends being like, dude, you got to see this fucking thing. Like it's unlike anything you've ever seen before. Secret handshake shit. Exactly. And the same, <laughs> but like that doesn't really exist that much anymore. It does like every now and again, barbarians, the first thing that I could think of in, in recent memory, but like it wasn't a huge marketing push. It wasn't. A, like, you know, you you didn't read about it on Twitter or every online site. It was just your friends saw it, and then they told everybody that they knew that you need to see fucking Memento. And that feels like something that can never happen again, almost. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it it was... Your point about uh, about Marvel, I wrote this actually down when I was watching Memento. I said, this is the kind of film in 2014 where you go make the new Spider-Man after. Right. It's like Cop Car for John Watt, you know, or um, like you were saying, like Colin Trevorrow, you know, Safety Not Guaranteed, going on to do Jurassic World. These big jumps because like, oh, wait, you're competent as a filmmaker. Welcome to the machine. 
you know, welcome to the meat grinder, you know, and it's cool that, you know, and we'll get to the Batman films is that Nolan was able to have a different path and to continuously return to one for me, one for them, you know, and now it's all one for him, which I think is awesome. You know, he's passed his like having to do like the, the Batman trilogy, which I, which I like, but by the end he was like done with. Well, and to your point about Batman, like he still ends up jumping into the superhero arena, but at that time, yeah. that was unheard of when people were like, oh, Chris Nolan's going to make Batman Begins. He's going to basically rebirth Batman and you're going to have a grittier, darker, like more quote unquote realistic take on it. It's still like, really? That fucking guy? We're like now the cliche to your point is like you make one small indie like safety not guaranteed. And all of a sudden you're given not only like a Jurassic Park movie, but a Jurassic Park trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely insane. Now, I do have a question for you about Memento that I was thinking about when kind of, you know, brainstorming this episode, seeing what I wanted to say about Chris Nolan, because that's the thing about Nolan now is like, is he, I have two questions. Is he the most important blockbuster filmmaker to hit American or really world cinema in his case, since he's not American, but let's just stick with blockbuster like cinema since Spielberg? I think that's fair. You know, I, uh, to connect it to a, a, probably a different conversation, but like he is in my mind, like one of like the three, it's like Tarantino, him and Wes Anderson are what that's like the, the Holy trilogy of like, Oh, I, I have a favorite filmmaker, you know, for and, but and, those guys, Tarantino and Anderson never really jump to straight up commercial filmmaking. They're always just making Tarantino movies or Anderson movies. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is the same way. Yeah. Like, it's just like when his movie comes out, you're not going to it because it's like Paul Thomas Anderson doing a piece of IP or whatever. You're like, oh shit, it's the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Where Nolan took that path the first way. And maybe even you, you could argue, uh, uh, blazed the trail for what has become diluted and what we've described now with like, Oh, just basically go to Sundance and like a a fucking baseball scout and find the next hot young rookie and throw him into like IP. Like Nolan, like was the one who was like, yo, you could do this. Like you can make a fucking small indie crime movie. Now in between you have insomnia. So he'd already made, a major film with a big studio big and like stars, huge yeah. stars. And also in like the time when Robin Williams was like subverting his image and going yeah. dark. That one hour photo era. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, that felt like, you know, he made Memento. That's his calling card. He does one solid, uh, you know, studio feature. And then it's like, okay, what IP do you have? Like, what can I put my personal touch on? You know? Yeah. But it was also a time when like that wasn't, that wasn't heard of. Like we weren't inundated with superhero films or IP in the same way we are now. Like that kind of felt fresh. No, totally. He, to your, to your question, to your question about Spielberg, I think it's a very good comparison because the, the way that there are events like giant events every time and but also like just the name recognition. Like there are yeah. few filmmakers who, you know, again, it's such an IP driven, um, you know, Hollywood now that people like, I think a lot of people would be hard pressed to say who the Russo brothers are. They're like, you know, like we know who they are, but it's like, Oh, I love the Avengers. Like it's, it's so innovative. Yeah, they love with, the characters. They don't love the filmmaker or, or the like, actors. I could, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I could call my parents and be like, Oh man, I saw the new Chris Nolan movie. And 
love or hate him, they'd at least have an opinion of like, oh, is this one good? You know, I didn't really like Tenet or, you know, whatever. Or like, I liked his Batman movies and I like the one where they go to outer space or in the dreams. Right. But like his last few, eh, I don't know. No, totally. He, people know who he is. Um, and again, he's he is on a short list of like for people who don't watch a lot of film, like he's their favorite filmmaker. Like yeah. I, I, and I'm not trying to talk down about friends I have, but friends who aren't big movie people, he's their favorite director. Cause yeah. they're, cause to them, there's a prestige about it, him. Cause he's still very stoic and serious. Yeah. Like nobody watches Chris Nolan movies because you're there to have a laugh. It's like, this guy takes this shit seriously. Well, and I, I remember, and again, I don't want to sound like a, pretentious asshole which I guess I am but I worked with a guy I bartended with a guy and remember after Dark Knight came out he's like that's the best movie ever made and he's like it's so deep and I'm like all right so but the way the things the Joker said the conversations these very obvious conversations that like Jim Gordon talking about like justice and stuff for him was the most complex thing he'd ever seen so that's high that's high text that's the Tyler Durden effect exactly you know and well that but also just like this is the smartest film he'd ever seen right you know and that's just the reality of it it's smuggled in to the commercial arena on the biggest level possible by a guy who's actually more fascinated with craft than he is probably the character at hand he's a fucking formalist man it's crazy but here's the second question I have for you too is Memento the best movie ever made that's been completely eclipsed within a filmography by everything that came after? Dude, it's it's so crazy because, again, when this first came out, you and I both loved it, right? And this was a really important film to me. I haven't seen it in 15 years. No, me neither. When it was first out, I watched it, honestly, once a week, once a month. Like, no joke. I was studying it. I go to film school. I wanted to like make that kind of film. We all did. And then basically, even when Batman Begins came out, I still was like, I still love Memento. I think at that point, I was still kind of watching it. By Prestige and definitely by Dark Knight, it was gone. It had been, it had been, it had been wiped from my mind and definitely by Inception, you know? But like, if you go back, it's kind of all there because oh, it, totally. it like starts Nolan's preoccupation with like his favorite two things, time and the consequences of one's actions and how they basically deal with it and the fallout there afterward. There's so much I was, I, while I was watching it, it was just a cool thing to go back. And we've talked a lot about like Rosetta stones on this podcast lately uh, about but later films kind of as a looking back, but it's also cool to look back at an early film. You haven't watched in a while and say, Oh shit. He was already, like you said, fully formed. Like he's talking about these things. And one of the things I thought was really neat about it, especially connecting to tenant is the fact that a character, the main character, basically intended, it seems like he doesn't know who he is either. There's a sense of a man out of time, right? He has no future. He has no past. And without a story, you're kind of a shell. That's what you get with Guy He's Pierce. He's a complete cipher. Complete cipher. That's what you get with Guy Pierce, too. It's like if you don't have, like... The idea of like of you know he's also kind of a narratologist too of the way you tell a story right yeah it has and, that awesome well wasn't the narration also like completely ad libbed like I heard that it's mostly improv by Guy Pierce where they were basically like here's the scene you're gonna watch it and then you make up what you think Leonard Shelby's saying as it happens because oh, there's the, even the black, the black and white stuff yeah and there's yeah. even like that great moment where you know he's in that foot chase and he's like I'm chasing this guy. <laughs> Oh, he's chasing me. (laughs) No, he's chasing me. And it's like, 
it, it that feels knowing that fact in your head you're like oh shit that's right he was just making that shit up as he went but it gives it such like a a cool almost jazzy spontaneity and and that is another thing too that we'll obviously talk about as we go forward is his talent with with casting and with actors with with directing actors right that you know Guy Pierce is at his most smarmy, funny Guy Pierce in Memento. He's like, yeah, he's like um, uh, Ed Exley in, in uh, LA Confidential times ten. You know, the the really cocky level. But you're like, be like, dude, you don't even know, fucking know who you are. But he's cre- like a lot of the character stuff is not on the page; it's totally in the performance. You get that a lot. I mean, McConaughey all the fucking way in Interstellar. Like, all the charm of that film comes from McConaughey. Well, and it's in Nolan's other favorite thing, too, is the editing. Oh, my like, God. Yeah. If there's ever been a major filmmaker's, like, body of work that's been more defined by, like, how they're cut together, yes. I don't think I could put my finger on it because Nolan loves, like, how movies, again, are put together. He loves the technical side of it because, like, between this... Dunkirk, Inception, the way his stuff like jumps time, and then now Oppenheimer, oh God, which yeah. is a straight up assault on you. Like that guy just loves images and how you can splice them together to create an emotional effect or like an impact on you. And, and beyond film is storytelling. Right. The way that, like you said, editing, moving things around in time to. Um, you know, to get back to the fucking Eisenstein synthesis, right? The idea of like these these two shots um, next to each other will create an effect, right? You know, um, and he's definitely interested in all the mechanics of filmmaking. But it was cool too to like see early on his interest in like like setting up the rules so clearly. Because one thing he's really good at is he he writes himself into a corner. He writes these puzzle box films, right? Where it's like, okay, in this one, we have to go backwards. In Inception, levels of dreams. In in uh, Dunkirk, three different timelines at different speeds. Tenet, one story going back, one going forward, and they have to cross at a certain point. And Oppenheimer, obviously, this insane way that it's cutting, obviously, the black and white thing and the color reminds me a lot of Memento. You know, he has these ways of like, I'm really going to confuse you, but I'm going to make the rules really abundantly clear that I'm going to have to follow as I'm telling you the story. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Tenet's the only one in my mind that kind of violates that because I'm not 100% sure what's going on in that movie at any given moment. But yeah, I also don't care because it all looks so fucking cool. Don't try to figure it out. Feel yeah, it. Just feel it. <laughs> but let's jump to Insomnia now, which you... Don't you certainly don't like as much as me. I revisited it about a year or so ago and was very taken with how much I was wrapped up into it. And honestly, this is my biggest confession when it comes to Nolan. A lot of his movies, as much as I enjoy them, revisit them and love them, they leave me very emotionally cold. Where Insomnia and another one, there's two in particular, Inception's the other one are the only ones that really worm their way into me on like an emotional level. That's a huge thing that I want to talk about too, that I think Nolan most of the time when he tries to do real humanity and real human moments, it it can fall flat. I think interstellar is one of the prime examples to a lot of stuff in that, that I do not think works. I don't think it works. And I also think 
he's such a structuralist. He's such a, a narratologist. And he has these, again, these puzzle boxes of like, everything has to work in a certain way for it. Everything has to work in a certain way for it to come together, right? For this, this thing to this flower to unfold. He tries to shoehorn emotional arcs into that. And emotional arcs don't, people don't work the way that his puzzle boxes work. Right. So I think in particular of like the dark Knight, where he says, Oh man, you know, the Joker's plan is we're going to tear Harvey down and everyone's going to lose hope because the DA killed somebody. I'm like, in what reality is that, is that a thing? He has these weird human things he tries to do. Or I'm like, are you a robot? Or are you just so fucking cold that you don't know how people like relate to one another. But I think when he goes full formalist, full structuralist is when he's at his best. Well, when we get to the dark night, that's the thing about that is I do. I, a lot of people pick at that kind of piece of that movie where they're like, does this really make sense or whatever? But he's almost, he's more interested in the bigger ideas and dark night. One of the things that does define it is that it's one of the great, post 9-11 movies oh, that totally. was dealing with a lot of the anxieties we were feeling and the Joker feels like a demon born from those anxieties to where like the whole idea was terrorism and mania and, and throwing a monkey wrench into the system and peeling back the because if you say you uh, took what you just said about Harvey Dent because Harvey Dent's supposed to uh, represent you know the the good uh, law-abiding, you know, bureaucrat who's yeah. who's the system who works. Also has has inf- like wormed his way into the system, but has proven to your point like it works. Like there people are there's still good people left who can defend you and help you. And the Joker is like, I want to tear all of that down. I want to destroy this symbol of what good America is. If you took that and actually transposed that. Unlike a a stereotypical post 9-11 like terrorist villain, it would kind of work the same way is that it's all about tearing down America. It's tearing down the ideals and the things that we hold on to after like these these horrible events have taken place and nobody seems to save us. Like that's what he's more interested in. You know, let's say logic be damned. Yeah, no, he's I mean, especially in Dark Knight and a few other films like he's a big fan of expositional theme talking you know where, oh yeah people, he's, he's huge in the info dump it's like and like especially commissioner gordon in all three films is like just and i mean it's good thing you have gary oldman being the one to carry these messages because he does it about as good as you can one of the <laughs> yeah. great magic tricks that chris nolan has ever pulled off is making gary oldman seem warm yeah well, exactly you know from the coldest director working with like a somewhat cold actor you a know complete psychopath yeah. by all reports but for me to, to the insomnia point i had a few things that i thought of i hadn't seen it since the theater um so 21 years right it was like spring 2020 2002 i think i was a senior um and watching it i said oh this is such a film of its time number one this feels sure. like you were saying like this is you have Robin Williams during that certain part of his career. And also he's getting Pacino right in his Michael Mann phase too. Like right after it's basically a heat it, sequel. No, no, he's exactly. Vincent Hanna. He, he's robbery homicide. He's yeah. the same fucking from LA. They're not even hiding the fact that they're like, okay, we're just doing, and he's really doing, he's not quite as bombastic as Hannah. He's a little closer to Lowell Bergman and the kind of smart and in the intelligence of Lowell Bergman from an insider. 
But I was like, oh my God. And we both know that Nolan is a monster Michael Mann fan. And he presented that Heat 4K. You know, um, he's, I know they're friends. Like, that he. The opening of The Dark Knight. I mean, a lot of The Dark Knight. Like, the entire, <laughs> like, when they said, hey, fuck, fuck building sets. Let's just do Chicago and make it blue as fuck. Let's just thief it, you know, or, you know, heat, heat this. But I thought it was cool to see, just for like context sake, visual elements in insomnia where it's like, Oh my God, he just does this. Like for me, a helicopter shot passing over nature over ice. It's in like five of his films, you know? And I, and I was like, cool. Um, you know, that hazy fog that, that kind of hangs over everything. The, uh, kind of somber melancholy self-conscious tone to it is that it's so dreary like, and it feels like it's coming from a guy who, like, is is just screaming at you, you need to take this seriously. But I find that refreshing revisiting it now and that we probably took this movie for granted when it came out because it was just one of many to where, like, you don't get many movies like Insomnia anymore. Big budget crime movies starring dad, dad movie movies. Sto- <laughs> yeah, dad movies starring movie stars. That are released in, you know, 2,500 theaters. Like, the, the people just don't make these films anymore. They also don't make movies with Hillary Swank anymore. It, it, it was, a, like you said, a completely, completely different time. You know, we don't get films like this. There's elements of it that I was like, oh, this is kind of a return to things I used to watch with my dad, you know, in the theater. Um, but one of the things I noticed, like, to your point earlier, like, it, the whole thing feels like an audition for other projects, right? It it's not a very mind blowing mystery. Like, I don't think it has a lot of legs once you figure out like the conceit. Um, it also is kind of, you don't see films like that anymore, but you see TV like it. It's mayor of East town. It's, you know, top of the lake. It's the killing all these, like, you know, all pulling from that very Swedish, very North, very Scandinavian, these cold locales, this like haunted detective, it's all over TV, you know? So he was kind of ahead of the curve, but doing it for film. But the whole thing, I was like, he is going to show what he can do. And this is going to be his calling card, you know, specifically the log scene, the log chase scene was like so well put together. And the final shootout with, with um, Robin Williams across the two cabins is like a masterfully done like action thriller scene and this is it's him, amazing. This is him just saying, like, all I get from this film is not much beyond I know how to work with actors. This is a movie with a budget. I'm ready for the big leagues. That's what that's the sense I got from it. Yeah. It's it very much is his in a weird way selling out moment. Totally. To where it's just like, I'm gonna make studio films now. And then he doubles down on that by making a Batman movie. Yes. And now watching Batman begins all these years later, like my main thought was, is everything Chris Nolan done become a Bond film for 20 <laughs> minutes at a time? Not only has it become a Bond film, it has inspired the new Bond films. Exactly. Well, like, I was going uh, to that next to where it's Skyfall like... Skyfall is just Dark Knight. Yeah, you know? well, everybody sits there and goes, should... Chris Nolan make a Bond movie and it's like Chris Nolan shouldn't chase Bond because Bond has been chasing him since Casino Royale. And and a a a somewhat separate point you have, you know, Spielberg too, like Nolan, a huge fan of Bond. He, I think he was almost going to do Bond at the time that he did Raiders. And like, he's like, let's just basically do our Bond, you know, our kind of like strapping hero. And 
I do think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of Bond stuff in Batman Begins. Obviously, Rachel Gould, we talked about this off, offline, but like, you know, he's, you made the point, he's Blofeld. You know, he's this megalomaniac um, who, like a lot of those villains, also like um, the villain from Spy You Love Me is like, oh, we're destroying the world, so I'm going to blow it all up and live under the water. Or the same with Moonraker is the same story, right? Like, we're going to leave the earth and kind of blow it up behind while we live on, you know, in space. Um, but it's, it's cool that he's kind of at his best, his best, most fun scenes in all three of these international scenes. He makes Batman like very international, right? Like, yeah, I mean, he goes to Hong Kong in the dark night for this weird interlude. Yeah. Like he kind of don't need the scene that you could cut out and be probably better pacing wise. Absolutely. And then all the stuff, I love the stuff in dark Knight rises. My favorite parts are him stuck in the hole. It's like the whole idea of him being this very kind of Monte Cristo. Like I'm, I'm in, you know, I need to kind of like become Batman again down in this hole. Um, but I saw Batman Begins six times in the theater. Um, and we've talked, we have a Batman episode, you know, talking about Pattinson, but like I'm a monster Batman fan. I mean, Tim Burton's Batman is like why I'm a film fan. So I saw this opening night the next day and the next day after that. I saw it three times in one weekend. And yeah. I still didn't think of it as like, I love Nolan, but I was just obsessed. You know, I just was, I got the American cinematographer to learn about like Wally Pfister. You know, I just wanted to know like everything about, you know, how they make movies. I remember Batman begins feeling so different from the majority of blockbusters. We were fed at that time because I mean, this is still pre iron man. Yep. This is uh post Angley's Hulk and it just kind of felt like this this nobody was getting it right yet nobody yeah. had really nailed like well Spider-Man 1 got it yeah Spider-Man 2 also the got Rainy it the movies yeah. get it but again those are like filmmaker forward like dominated by this one particular voice and then you know Batman Begins comes out and completely changes the game because the other the other thing about this movie is that you took it seriously because it had like Big actors, serious actors yeah. giving like real performances and like everyone from Christian Bale to Morgan Freeman to Michael Caine, Gary Oldman playing Commissioner Gordon, who then is Lieutenant Gordon. Yeah. And then um, Katie Holmes showing up. Um, Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson is Carmine Falcone. I mean, it just and he created this entire world that felt uniquely chiseled by him. Well, it, he really classed up the joint, you know, yeah. I think that was a big, a big thing. And this is one of those films. It's very similar than Casino Royale came out after die another day that the, the bar had been sunk so low in terms of like cheese factor, same thing that happened with Batman and Robin. Right. So people were still kind of bruised from that. And, and partly from specifically Batman and Robin of Batman fans and people who just were like, I'm not going to see a Batman movie. And I remember like, when they first announced Batman Begins, my dad's like, I'm not going to see another fucking Batman movie. Because he took me to see Batman and Robin. Well, the, that was you where know? I was going to go with that, too, is because, like, Batman's one of the great examples of a franchise that, like, brought the comic movie back. And then, in a weird way, tanked it, too. Yeah. Because nobody wanted to watch another Batman movie after the Joel Schumacher ones. Well, there's a cool... I remember seeing um, a cool interview with... Nolan at the time uh, from Begins, I think on one of the many DVDs and Blu-rays <laughs> that I have of this movie. Um, but he was saying his, his big inspiration, I mean, like no surprise, was was Donner's treatment of Superman, and that which makes sense. Be, but specifically the casting, to your point, 
that Superman is filled with like Marlon Brando, fucking like new face Christopher Reeve, you know, but Gene Hackman, like two of the biggest stars in the fucking world are headlining your movie. This film is Popeye also... Popeye Doyle from The French Connection is Lex Luthor. Yeah, it's like, amazing. That's a and, big deal. And then you pack Batman Begins in the same way with, you know, Bale at the time was still relatively unknown to like the, the common viewer, but a lot of other people in that were not, you know, relative unknown, especially to like the fans of like British cinema, like people like Michael Caine and, and you know, Tom Wilkinson. Um, but the whole thing, I remember when they were really first advertising it and I was looking at pictures online. I was obsessed. They had a trailer come out the summer of 04 around the same time. I think it, it played with the village. I remember seeing it. Oh, that's and right. It was, it was a teaser teaser where it's mostly him walking into the mountains of, um, you know, going to the Himalayas and that um, Liam Neeson voiceover. Yeah. And you're like, and then you see a flash of the Batman face, like in darkness at the end, the bats coming out of the cage. It's, I watched it over and over and over again. And I remember, but all the stuff they first were advertising was very like dramatic. And they were saying, we're not going to do a lot. Of, it's not gonna be super action heavy. It's not gonna be very goofy. It's going to be really, like you said, like realistic and like kind of down to earth. And the film comes out, you still have like goofy, there's still goofy comic book stuff, you know, the, the bond nature of it, like you said, or the bomb, that's basically going to, the equivalent of the bomb is going to blow up the entire city. It's pretty simple stakes once you kind of get to the main like action fair. Yeah. And then it, it starts his one for me phase too, because he goes and makes the prestige, but he makes it on like. You know, relatively speaking, it's a much smaller level, but I yep. mean, the production value in this movie is awesome. It's still what, like a $60 million movie or something? Yeah, it was something, because he already, he started filming it before, before Begins came out. Right. Because it came out October of 06, so like, basically like, what, 14 months after, Yeah, you know, or 15 months after Begins. So. He got it in while he could, and he brought Christian Bale and... Hugh Jackman and fucking Michael Caine along with him. What do you think of the prestige? This is a lot of people's favorite. It's really high up there for me. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll get into our, like, I think we should save our, like our numbers for later. Sure, right? sure, sure. But this one, I was such a huge begins fan that I, like, I like read the book. I, I didn't even finish it. I got the book. I remember like in early Amazon days, um, I saw like, opening night. I remember cause I was, I was bartending went with some friends. Um, at the time I was just, I, I loved it. Um, on rewatch value, I say it wanes a little bit. Um, I don't think it has again, like memento quite the punch. Yeah. But the thing that makes this film great is just the world he creates. I mean, Wally Pfister and then Nathan Crowley's I mean, production designer, his, his, his lifelong production designer, you cannot discount the amazing stuff they've done together. And I love the kind of steampunk world they create specifically the one trick that, um, uh, Michael Caine builds for Hugh Jackman where he can make the cage disappear into his arms, but there's all those gears on his back. It's full on fucking like Del Toro, you know, and all this, like the rust and the cranking and the dirty, like the dirty London streets. Like I could just soak in this world forever. And re I rewatched it this week and I probably hadn't seen it in 10 years. Um, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I, I, I think that probably 20 minutes too long, um, all of his uh, movies are 20 minutes but this too long, one, except for maybe Memento. Yeah, but it's cool to see him do the narrative, the kind of the, the narrative stuff here too, because he sets up at the beginning the whole the whole idea of like there's three acts to any magic trick, and mm -hmm. he's basically like basically any magic trick is a story, and 
all his films are a magic trick in some in some way that it it comes there's usually I also noticed in this film that kind of relates to his other fi- other features is there's always like a secret there's always a, there's a, there's a scene or a secret and we see the scene numerous times from different angles and but he's always hiding something we get that in Oppenheimer definitely with a certain reveal of the villain um, we get that in Memento showing things Tenet obviously showing things over and over again from different angles um, as like, this is the moment when everything kind of goes bad, or this is what's caused the the situation that we're in now. Well, and it's also one of the first movies that I think can be explicitly read as him talking about his own filmmaking process to a certain degree, because it becomes about science colliding with magic and it's almost about like here's this story I want to tell here's this act I want to pull off but how do I get to the technical place where I can pull off the greatest magic trick for you and that's where Tesla and stuff comes in and like that this is also like the first time where like Nolan starts talking about science on like a deep nerdy fucking level and like getting into like the historical figures of science, which like he obviously would revisit on a grand scale with Oppenheimer. Yeah. Well, I was thinking the same thing. It's not just scientists, but like mad scientists in a way that the kind of overreaching narrative, like they're all have a sense of like Dr. Frankenstein to them of, and a lot of his films, I, I kind of noted this with prestige was there's an infernal machine in a lot of his films. And, you know, um, you have even the, the microwave emitter in Batman Begins, the the Tesla machine for um, the great Danton in Prestige. Um, obviously, Inception, I think, is just the dream technology, the turnstiles in Tenet, and obviously leading up to the ultimate of all time, the atomic bomb. You know, this idea of, like, the the draw, the, the kind of wonder you get from working in science and creating these things. But as Tesla says, destroy it. Yeah. I made this thing, but it shouldn't be used. Don't turn it on. Yeah. We can just create things using like our greatest technologies that we probably shouldn't have. Yeah. The, the, the the heights of, of human ingenuity and it's amazing. We did it. We shouldn't have done it. And then Nolan's, career completely changes again with the dark Knight. I mean, he just blows the fuck up where he just becomes the biggest filmmaker in the world. He makes the blockbuster that a lot of people now cite in modern times, at least as being like the movie that it's like, it's jaws. It's it's the jaws of the two thousands where it, it changed blockbuster filmmaking forever. I don't know how much I even want to litigate or Mm -hmm. talk about the dark Knight because it's like, it kind of exists on its own plane and it's been, talked about to death and celebrated and torn down and everything in between and watching it now you still go damn this movie just fucking rips it's too long yeah and it's probably a little too self-serious like i think it was, i wish it was like a little funnier but it also he empire strikes backs it you know yeah. where he it's all about okay if the first movie is about a vigilante and a vigilante dealing with like, again, the moral conundrum of what he's doing, what he's bringing into the world, into the world, the dark Knight is all about the consequences yeah. of like Batman exists. Now, what the fuck does that mean? And that's as no one as it gets. Yeah. What, what did you, you know, unleash that they, they bring you it up. Can, at the beginning. You can't put it back in the box. Yeah, exactly. He's the infernal machine yeah. in a way, right? He's, exactly. you know, he has, 
he's changed. And there's a, there is a thing um, that they say in the prestige too. I think that Tesla says it's like, we're basically in a, a brand new, a brand new world now, you know? And there's, that's the theme that runs throughout is the apocalyptic nature of like, all his films. There's a sense of like Pandora's box, you know, or the, the bottle's been opened, the box has been opened and we can't put it back again. And we have just, we may not all die tomorrow, but we're on our way. And that's, that's Oppenheimer through and through. It's the culmination of that, right? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And then he goes from dark Knight and makes another one for, but here's the crazy thing is that when we talk about his one for him movies, is there hundred million dollar plus blockbusters yeah. that continue to push the medium forward and experiment in ways that you probably couldn't before in blockbuster filmmaking. That's what makes Nolan so unique is even the one for him things are like so commercially minded. It's not like he's going out and making some $2 million indie drama or like tar. He's making fucking inception, a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio where he descends and becomes James Bond and other people's dreams and pulls heists. It's Awesome. I rewatched it this week, or I guess two days ago, and I, I think it's been five years since I've seen It's definitely pre-COVID, and I fucking love this movie. Like, this is one of those films that, like, there are, there are definitely problems, but, like, you're like with The Dark Knight, it rips so fast, and it just moves to clip, and it continuously just adds more, like, not just stakes, but, like, cool shit. Like, he knows the wow factor. I mean, I think, like... How many scenes in this blow my fucking mind? I mean, like the whole um, hallway chase with Joseph Gordon-Levitt is just cool as fucking hell. The snow, snow snipers are my favorite thing in anything. Like the, the, them in these snow tack The gear. ultimate Bond homage well, too. The, the whole the skiing. skiing sequence. I wrote that same thing. Like him turning around and shooting is like the beginning of, you know, Spy Love Me, right? It's the ultimate Bond. Or, or On Her Majesty's Secret Service that too. That too, yeah. Or uh, World's Not Enough does it, you know? These there's great, a lot of Bond oh, skiing. There's a, there's a lot of ski scenes, yeah. Let's not. <laughs> but um, all but the, again, all, like, the elements are so cool. This is like, this is also the movie that people point to to where people are like, Nolan should make a Bond movie. And it's like, he fucking did. And he added like acid trip dream sequences to it. Like, why would you want him? Like, why would you want Nolan tethered to another IP when you could just let him basically create and riff on our favorite IPs, but do it in the way that, that allows him to create original property. Well, this is his most like, this is him starting to go into the really crazy heady shit, you know, but still a big blockbuster. But this is what leads to Tenant. This is what leads to parts of Interstellar. Obviously, you know, what leads to a lot of the storytelling in Oppenheimer and definitely the time stuff. Um, the way there's the three levels of the dreamer is very similar to what he tries to do with narrative in, in Dunkirk. Right. He's playing with these kind of elements already. But I think Interstellar is just a fucking banger of a movie. It also, I mean, like a lot of a lot of people also point to is that this might be the apex of his wife guy problems too. <laughs> is that he's always like the one thing we know about Christopher Nolan, who is a very private, stoic, British individual, is that if anything happened to his wife and kids, we would probably never see another movie again because that's all he loves in this world. Like he loves making movies and he loves, I love my wife. Like he's the (laughs) ultimate cinematic wife guy. (laughs) But I mean, it is the engine that unfortunately drives like a lot of his plots are like dead wives, dead girlfriends. And like, 
even in Oppenheimer, as much as I love that movie, the women in it are relegated to wives and a muse who's also crazy and kills herself. So it's like he doesn't have the best female characters, we'll say. Well, I mean, Maul in Inception, she's literally a projection of the male lead character. She's not even a person. Like, you're your biggest female character. And she's a psychotic shrew. Yeah, she's like, she's, who's also suicidal. It's fuck what? Like, who, what? So here's the question. What girlfriend in uh, Nolan's past yeah. fucked him up? Like, so, someone was in there and twisted some screws, and he he's still working it out despite being as successful as he is. I, I had them all in my life at one point. We, we all have, I'm sure, you know, sure. that, like, oh, my God, I this is... This is a this is a dumpster fire. I gotta get the fuck out of here. So he he definitely that probably happened at some point in his life. Well, we hope with that we don't marry them and they kill themselves in front of us it, because that's a rough go. Yeah, exactly. But Inception's still my favorite. Like I, it, it's my favorite. I don't hide that fact whatsoever. It's the one again that I go back to every time I get an emotional charge out of it. It's fucking just rips as soon as you get into the action sequences. It's still kind of unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it has, like, dudes wearing suits awesomely, firing machine guns, shooting grenade launchers, and pulling heists. And it also has Killian Murphy dealing with daddy issues. What else do you want in a film? Honestly, one other thing about this film is I think it's my favorite production design from any of his films. Um, Specifically, again, like, the snow level when there's a shot where Killian Murphy comes through the grate. And it's just this amazingly designed, like, brutalist architecture on the inside leading up to the design of the safe where his dad is inside. That kind of Kubrick light coming from behind the bricks is one of the coolest fucking images. I love his sci-fi imagery, and I love what he does with his team. Like, this film, I think, is the height of that for me. That and Tenet, I think, is pretty close. I was going to say, Tenet is, like, the second cousin of this film. Oh, yeah. Because it's just, and probably not even second. It's like the nearest like, Kiss, kiss the and kissing cousin <laughs> to, to Inception because it feels like it's playing in the same swimming pool a bit. 100%. Um, what do you think of The Dark Knight Rises? You know, when I first saw it, I loved it. Like, I um, really, I, did. I hated it. No, I, I liked it a lot. Um, I was also kind of being contrarian about Dark Knight at the time. And so, like, I was. I was you would I yeah of course and I've come around I love a lot I love a lot of the sequences in this movie like I love the the opening bond heist of taking out that plane fucking sweet I think Tom Hardy's having fun oh my god he's having a great time <laughs> um, <laughs> but I love like all the like kind of dickens there's like almost like he's like Fagin with like his army like living in like the sewer um but again, we were, I think I love everything of him being uh, Bruce being dropped back into the um, into that hole, the pit. I think it's the like Lazarus pit it, sequence. Yeah, it was so interesting. And I mean, it's so like I love Noel, but sometimes his stuff is so again, like his allegory and his is so thin. But like he's back in he's back in the hole he fell in as a kid. Right, and it's the exact same design, and you could see him being like, "Oh, this is so brilliant!" Like, it's not that brilliant. I, it's a cool visual cue. Uh, I love that. I like the end um, kind of showdown in the street. That movie is out of everything he's done the the most two longest. Oh my god, <laughs> this is it the, goes on it, forever. Well, the, the it's also act, the silliest. It's weird. 
It's really goofy. Well, and and like Marianne Cotillard is straight up bad in this movie. Oh, like, she's they, horrible. They, she's in it. like she's also not always great in Inception either. Here's like, a question. I I and this might be. I have a couple hot takes on this podcast, but here's my my first question for you: Was Marianne Cotillard ever good? I don't think she was. Did did we get tricked? Because I I go she's back not good and in watch Public her, Enemies either. That's what I'm saying. I watch her performances now, especially in American movies, and I'm like. Do we get conned? Do we get conned into Marion Cotillard? Because what's she doing now? Just doing like peddling like 9-11 theories, like jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams or Is whatever. She? Oh, yeah. She's oh, a big truther. I haven't kept up. Mm-hmm. Well, why would you? Because we've all <laughs> discovered that Cotillard is no, uh, she's no champ. She's no Sharon Stone. She's no Sharon Stone. That's for sure. <laughs> no, uh, I was thinking, it was so funny. I wrote this down. I was watching it. I wrote... Is Cotillard bad? <laughs> was she ever good? Because well, she's a de- she's a definition of like wins a for an Oscar for a foreign film, you know, with Ian Rose, sure, and then rides that. When's the last time you watched that, dude? I don't think I ever saw the whole thing. <laughs> I don't think I ever finished that shit. But she, was I also, did. I like it well enough. But she's in, but she, man, her fucking agent deserves a fucking Oscar for the shit he lined her up with, man, or she lined her up with, like. You get in, you get into like Christopher Nolan, Michael Mann. Um, what else was she in around that time? Because she was like doing oh the oh James Gray, the immigrant. Oh, that's right. She's she's okay in that, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, it was also the time when like we were trying to launch these international stars like Jean or uh, Jean Desjardins yep. for the artist and stuff, who ended up being kind of good. Like I love him in Wolf of Wall Street, and he oh, does yeah. a, a couple movies that I really like. But like he never really made it in America. But where like Gong Lee, Trey Gong Lee, Gong Lee's yeah. big too. But like for a while, you know, Cotillard was to your point like in everything. And now I, I look back on it and I go, hmm, we might have fucked up. <laughs> Who else could have played that? Anybody. Anybody. <laughs> Literally put like a black bob on them. You good. But yeah, I mean, as a whole, Dark Knight Rises, I mean, it's one of his weaker films. It also, he like, he didn't want to make it. Like that was a that was a contractual thing. My understanding yeah. was because that was basically the way he wanted to do Dark Knight. He had a whole obviously idea like with his brother and with with Goyer, like make this film. Um, well, he, Heath Ledger's death. Also, that's why he didn't want to do it for the yeah, most it's part. Why he yeah. really didn't want to do it is because they actually had a follow up that was something like I, I'm sure I'll get corrected by some bat fan online or whatever. But I believe it was like Joker in Arkham, like orchestrating something from like inside. That's like nothing but chaos. Like it's Hannibal a continuation of that. Yeah. 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 That's what I heard. I heard the saying that he was going to be the big bad behind the scenes of the third one. Right. Um, and then they were still going to work after the death about the death of Harvey Dent. It was still going to re ripples. Then like Joker knew the secret, but no one else did, you know, kind of thing. Um, and Dark Knight Rises, it's weird because there's elements. I like the return to the League of Shadows stuff. I think it's kind of cool to make it like kind of comes full circle. With it's the, with it's the, his the, specter. It's very, that's a good point. It's really, yeah. Dude, I mean, watching he, he, Batman begin it again. I, I'm being real. Like all of his movies, not all, but a lot of them become Bond films for like little stretches. Like the whole introduction of Morgan Freeman's um Lucius. Yeah, Lucius Fox. Like, he's Q. Yeah. That's all that is. Yeah. And then, like, you know, like to to your point, like, Liam Neeson, like, Ra's al Ghul is Blofeld. Q 
Kane is honestly M in a way. Yeah. Like he's kind of, cause he's his like, his like moral compass. Right. You know? And it just becomes like bond again and again to where the league of shadows then is specter. It's the thing that comes back and haunts him. Yeah. You know, and, and, and follows him and destroy, almost destroys the world that he's there to protect. I mean, it's not great, but I've grown to appreciate Dark Knight Rises on repeat viewings because it feels like him making the best of a bad situation where totally. he's like, fuck, I got to do this. I at least should have some fun and like literally end it like an old 60s episode of the Batman series where Batman <laughs> carries a bomb out to sea, a nuclear bomb, which is actually now ironic in hindsight, having seen Oppenheimer with a guy who was obsessed with, with like the impact of an atomic bomb and like the damage it could do. The end of Dark Knight Rises is just like, meh, nuclear weapon, the sea will take you. <laughs> No, and it, um, yeah, it's actually, I watch it probably once a year. I mean, I watch all the, the, the Batman. That's insane. Yeah, I watch all the Batman films probably on a yearly basis. Because, um, like, again, just like, even put that film on fucking silent, and just visually, it's so cool looking. I mean, Dark Knight Rises is a badass looking movie. I think Gotham in the snow, at the whole, like, like the No Man's Land uh, series of the comics where it's like, they're basically, it's Escape from New York, right? It's like, oh, sure. you're behind enemy lines. It's just. It's just fucking fun. So it's, it's like a low on the totem pole, I think for his films, but I don't have a bad time watching it. Now, here's my other question. As we transition basically from dark Knight rises to Dunkirk is that Nolan has weird politics. And like a lot of people look at dark Knight rises as a huge example because Bane tries to basically rile up essentially like occupy wall street and the cops become the good guys and whatever. And it's like, I don't think, that he meant it in a, especially now having seen Oppenheimer, but I don't feel like he meant it in like a Occupy Wall Street is bad and cops are good. It feels like such a literal reading of that is that it almost feels like anybody can exploit your ideals, especially if you're in like a weakened state like poverty and uh, use it to turn you against like maybe the better parts of your society. Now, even that does embrace cops as being the better part of society, which is not great, but like you get what I'm, I'm saying to where like not everything's bad. Uh, and just because like Bane is able to like Bane's a fucking super villain. He's, he's persuasive. I mean, his, his speeches are ridiculous, but he's persuasive. And to me, it felt more like about the exploitation of weakness than it does Nolan actually taking a political side. But it could be totally fucking wrong, too. No, I'm, I'm with you, man. Cause I, there's, I think, especially earlier in the film, they really set up us as the audience to kind of like kind of choke on the opulence because you have that scene where Bruce kind of comes out of hiding and he's shaved and he goes to meet um, at Marion Cotillard's kind of soiree and people are breaking these giant like lobster claws. And it's this like, and it's, um, he sees Anne Hathaway who's kind of saying, you know, you're all are going to, you all been living so fat while we've had so little. And it's like, yeah, like that's, I think the film holds on to that. But to your point, we know pretty quickly that Bane is a charlatan, that he is, you know, going to use these people's poverty, because he says the first thing you should do is go let, get the guys out of Blackgate Prison. You know, the, Harvey Dent's and Commissioner Gordon's prisoners. They were, you know, we as an audience know 
those guys are all bad. That's bad. You know, and so we already know that he's, like you said, he's using these people. And, but also to your point, this it's, it's so hard. The visual cue of in this street scene, no, there's no guns for the cops and they have billy clubs and they're like, and they're being led by Matthew Modine in his dress shoes. And he's like, let's go. We're cops. And it's like, uh. let's whip these protesters asses. Hasn't exactly aged great, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter. Well, it, yes, it has not. And on top of that, like, there, there's some, again, logic stuff in Nolan that I think is hilarious that has been picked apart online. But one of my favorites is Dark Knight Rises, where they said, Bane's in the sewers. Let's send every single cop in the city into the sewers. Like, they it's like 10,000 police people. They're like, in what world? They're like lemmings. You know, it's just so fucking funny. And then they close them in. It's like, well, there goes all the cops. Fuck, we didn't think this one through, guys. We have no more cops. It's just, there's that guy, uh, Pitch Meeting on, um, on YouTube who I like, and he had a whole thing about that. He's like, he did the math. He's like, yeah, I think we got 30,000 cops for, for the entire city. They so. all got nuked in the sewer. It's crazy. Every, also, how'd they fit there? Every single cop. Bane's just, just choke slamming them one by one. They, they just form a line and try to charge him. He just picks them up. Poosh. Now send me another policeman. <laughs> He's again like, but he is like one of the highlights having the best time. Like fucking Tom Hardy. One, one, one of my, cause he's, he's doing it. He's got his Bronson body back. The like yeah. the big bruiser body, you know, he's got a lot of fat on him. It's just, this is before warrior, right? Where he shreds that. It's the, right around the same, right the same time. year. Yeah. Right before. Cause I remember he's uh, just jacked in a way that's like intimidating. It's cr- cause he's got the almost like, you know, just that like, Almost like old strongman body, yeah. You know where it's not. Oh, he coming. looks like one of those old muscle man toys. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, or like an old circus strongman. I will <laughs> lift you, Batman. I will bench press you like Nicolas Cage bench presses strippers. <laughs> well, and again, this film also just looks so fucking cool. Like, I love the underground lair where he where he breaks Batman's back. That that like, but this is the silly part of it too. Yeah. what I was referring to earlier is that it's like there's a fucking. Muscle man with an underground layer. There's a nuclear weapon at one point. Batman has the fucking bat wing. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fucking Robin. Like, it's so... Like, no one's just like, man, I don't get... Like, you know what? We're going out weird, guys. But it is still so Nolan that... They they, blow up the Pittsburgh Steelers. He loves, he loves like, scenes during... That's him, like, doing his, like, Michael Bay thing where he's like, sports... That's that's American, right? American football. <laughs> we don't kick it here. You blow up Ben Rapplesberger. Oh my! He is, he's there. He's so, in the scene. Th- th- you know what? Heinz Ward. He didn't fall into that pit. Though. Everyone else is dead. You know what? Good for him. I always liked Heinz Ward. One of the smartest players on yeah. the Steelers during the time when I really was paid attention to football. So. Interstellar is the next, and this is kind of like a divisive one because, like, the people who love this movie fucking love it, and yep. the people who dislike this movie fucking dislike it. Where are you? When it first came out, disliked hardcore. Um, I really dislike this film. Similar to films like Dark Knight Rises for me is, like, there are so many scenes that I love and sequences that it makes up for all the stuff I don't like. 
I think, again, we were talking earlier, the emotional core of this, I don't think works. I, I think that, I, that whole stupid idea and Anne Hathaway is terrible in this where she's like, again, I'm the millionth person to say this, the people who hate it really, they bring her up as one of the prime examples of like, love is what actually is the thing that exists in five dimensions. Go fuck yourself. I really hate that shit. And, and then, but I think what works is McConaughey. I think that, He's doing McConaughey. He's he's at his most charming. He's super cool. He's you just see him running the scenes and kind of doing his thing. Um, but there's a few sequences in particular. I think that when he has to spin the ship to line up with the this base in in like space with that organ track and the Hans Zimmer score is amazing. Oh, it's awesome. It's pure cinema. Like that, I I could watch that scene over and over again. And I think that la- the last like forty minutes of like when you find out that. Um, that Matt Damon's character man is this coward. And then it just, that doesn't stop. It's kind of a great, like 40 minutes. I think of like awesome sci-fi action thriller shit, but all the talking about that. This is, I think where his, the rules kind of fall apart a little bit. And like the logic too, of like, wait, you talk to yourself, but then you're the only guy who can pilot that ship. So why wouldn't they have called you? There are bigger logic holes, I think in this film than are found in his other ones. So I revisited this for the first time since the theater where I almost fell asleep while watching it on 70 millimeter and was so disappointed, but I came to the realization on this, this rewatch that in interstellar at the very least, Nolan is a De Palma who thinks he's a Spielberg in that moment. (laughs) Interesting. Because for me, I had never made the connection uh, from Nolan to De Palma until thinking about these movies in, in unison and as like a complete body of work. And it makes more sense because Nolan, like De Palma, is more interested in the mechanical aspects of filmmaking and the things you can do with editing and how your camera moves and using IMAX lenses than he is in actual people. And human beings and like, you know, De Palma very famously talks about Vertigo as being the movie that unlocked his desire to be a filmmaker and the realization that he could be a filmmaker because he, the technical uh, side of his brain suddenly came alive and married with the storytelling love that he, he kind of lived with, but like he never fully cared about people. people. The characters in all De Palma movies are more or less pawns for him to move around yeah. while he experiments with the form of cinema. And a lot of the times, Tenet... Uh, Oppenheimer Oppenheimer. Moments. Well, Oppenheimer to me is Oliver Stone more than anything else. But Inception... Like, Inception is, like, one of the ultimate filmmaking metaphors where, like, he literally admits that he based every character off of like a different job that you need on a movie set. And it becomes about forming a team so that you can create a different reality to pull off a magic trick. Like, is there a more direct like line to, to filmmaking than that? I mean, the prestige again, here are the mechanics married with a story that we want to tell. How do we show you how the magic trick is pulled off? Like with interstellar, he wants to do the big heart swelling melodramatic emotion that Spielberg did. And it's why like, you know, in that, that great Jason Zineman book shock value, you know, uh, 
they talk about how De Palma saw Carey as being his Jaws, but it was such like a technical work and a work of like virtuoso filmmaking that like none of those kids you really give a shit about. And even Piper Laurie thought the movie was a comedy the whole time. Yeah. Like nobody really got it. It kind of worked in spite of itself. Like, and then he gave up on ever trying to chase Spielberg and just did his own thing for the rest of his career. Like interstellar is sort of that for Nolan to where like, he tries this one big heart swelling melodramatic spectacle and then kind of goes, well, maybe that's not me. Maybe I need to go back to get getting into my cold, technical, weird movies because Dunkirk comes next and there's not a more distant film where all of the the characters and that all of the human beings are really just a, a group representation of a country's patriotism in the face of like fascism and war. Well, and it, I was talking to my writing partner, Yvonne, last night. We were talking about 2001. And I think that he was also doing some 2001 stuff in Interstellar. Oh, right? 100%. I mean, just, he I mean, wants to be Kubrick and Spielberg at the same time. Exactly. And it's funny that the further he's gone on, he's gotten more Kubrick and like an honest way. I think there's a lot of Oppenheimer I saw that reminded me weirdly of Barry Lyndon at moments, just the way characters, again, I, I kind of wrote this down too, like pawns, they're, they're figures, right? Specifically, um, I feel like Florence Pugh's character, you know, is sure. like what she represents versus like her being a real flesh and blood person. Um, the pro- the thing with Dunkirk, and but we were talking about 2001 and that 2001 is a like the character is the human race, right? It's like our history is, is that's the character. Right. And, and the race to, to technological advancement. E- exactly. And that's kind of like, like to your point about Dunkirk, right? It's like, it's the army, you know? So it's like, Here's this this the, the army kids. Well, it's England. It's England. That's what yeah. it is. It's it's England uniting against oppressive odds at, at at all times. And you mostly never even see the bad guys. It's it's literally like again to bring it back to James Bond. It's for Queen and Country. Yeah. It's the, oh yeah. It's the whole like British stoicism. Like we are going to stand in the face of of evil. And we're going to stand united and we're going to serve our duty to our country. Everybody in that movie becomes James Bond. Yo, and you have like, you know, Mark, you know, like, again, getting a cast like Mark Rylance and yeah. Branagh to like. And a young, uh, I mean, he's still young, but Barry Keoghan too. Yep. And, and, you know, Killian Murphy again, you yeah. know, for a, a smaller but a really important role. And our boy Tom Hardy wearing a mask pretty much the whole time. Do you think the experiment works? In this film? Dunkirk? Yeah. I think Dunkirk is a thrilling work of cinema. Every time I fucking watch it. I also like that it's under two hours. It, yeah, like, I, I keep for, It's always weird how quick it goes. It fucking cooks, dude. But yeah, I, I love it because I think it's the movie where Nolan is just like, this is who the fuck I am. This is what I'm interested in. I don't like, uh, that's why I think it's a rejection of Interstellar and like th- even the attempt at any kind of heart going forward because it's just like, I'm a cerebral, like I want to tell stories on a on a big budget, like spectacle level, but I'm a cerebral, cold, stoic artist. And that's just like, this movie is true to who I am as a person. And I respect that more than trying to do something at like else that might be outside of your wheelhouse. No, I, I, I agree on that point. Like I, I hadn't seen it since the theater watched it this week. And I think I, I respect what he's doing. I respect, like you said, him moving away from 
trying to be something that he's not right. And, and I, I, I had the same thought you did of like, this is him owning his, like his uh, obsession with formalism and with, with cinema as itself. And what I kept thinking of was um, back to my film school days, we were looking at like early short films, like from like the silent era. And like, I think it was D.W. Griffith was the first guy to ever do cross cutting between two separate scenes. It was um, this um, it's just a fire engine going to a fire. And it used to be before that they would show the entire scene of the fire and then a separate scene, the car coming. And they didn't they cross because they, they were worried that the audience wouldn't get it. They, right. The audience couldn't comprehend because they were, they were thinking in theatrical terms, right? Theater terms of wait, 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 how what? Like it doesn't make how do you, your brain can't process that and it, it worked and obviously we get cross gunning all the time. But like Nolan's taking that idea to the next level, right? Of like, what if we were cross cutting between three different timelines that are moving at different speeds? Right. For me, it doesn't work for me. Um, I respect this film. Um, I've, this is like the third, I guess it's the second time I've watched it. I it's tense. I love the feeling of it. I think that you still, even if you're going to be super cerebral, I need some stakes in this film. It's a little bit too, my stakes, I mean like people that I love and it's a little bit too impersonal for me on, on that's one problem. And two, it lose, honestly, I lose the thread. There's times where I'm just like, I, I it, there's times where I'm like, wait, I don't know what timeline where I'm are in we here. Now? Where are we now? Versus like normal storytelling. It's like, this is the climax. This is the moment. And it, and it's kind of cool where you have all the three like timelines come together for that moment and you get the Tom Hardy kind of savior scene. But again, it seems like he's pulling off again, like the magic trick of filmmaking less versus having an amazingly rousing, cool action scene. And that's always been a, a problem for him. He's not a good action director. He just never has been. And he doesn't work from my understanding. He doesn't work with a second unit. He likes to do everything himself. Right. And which is a problem because his his hand, <laughs> which is a problem because his hand to hand scenes have always been bad. Um, yeah, they're rough. Bad, they're a bit rough. Um, he his he also is a filmmaker similar to David Lean. Lean is a much better action director, but like I'm going to show you something huge. It's not the way I'm. I'm it's not the way I show it to you. It's just the fact that I did it. So like the 747 crash in Tenet is the example. It's really fucking boring. I, honestly, it's a, I think it's a very boringly shot scene. I love Tenet, but it's like. I don't care that you used a real plane. I don't, it doesn't fucking matter because you're not George Miller. George Miller's the other end of like, he uses practical effects and it's like, holy shit. Like he knows how to shape. And it's like, no one's just not an action director, you know? Um, and so there's scenes in Dunkirk where I'm like, I don't know where I am. I don't know. I don't know like one plus one equals two here because you're doing all these things. So that's just my, my take on it. But you love Tenet. But I love Tenet. <laughs> The most nonsensical of all of Nolan's movies. Where I couldn't tell you what happens in Tenet. I really couldn't. Like, I try. But he even says, like, you, you quoted the line earlier, don't, don't try to understand it, just feel it. Like, that, I mean, that is Tenet, and I still really love it because it's such a visual feast. What the fuck is going on in this movie? I couldn't fucking tell you. I think we, we did the Deal Breakers episode, right? And I... At that point, I'd seen it like five times. I've seen it 12 times now. Good for you. I Everybody needs a hobby. It, no, and that was the thing is, dude, I was like, I live alone. It's COVID. I have nothing to do. I'm going to figure out Tenet. And it's funny because like I'm like, 
I am uh, a contrarian in a way where I'm kind of like, I like Nolan. I don't always love him. And I'm not going to, I'm not as much of a fanboy as I think a lot of people are. But I just went to bat for Tenet because, again, I'm a contrarian. Everyone's like, I don't like it. I'm like, what's the best thing ever? But I actually do. It is pretty fucking good. Because it's him. It's to me, it's it's the. It's, it's pure again. It's pure again. And it's it's the formalism and the crazy stuff he's working on in in, um, in Dunkirk. But it's wrapped into a narrative, right? Where it's like still you're in one timeline for whatever timeline that is. I don't think I understand it all either, but I think a lot of it actually lines up when you watch it. I think sure. the the scene that makes no sense is the end battle. I don't know who they're fighting. It's so fucking awesome. Uh, it's, it's great, but I'm just like, I don't understand. Yeah, what is going? This is like a giant paintball game. What the fuck is going yeah, on? I, I'm late, and you guys already talked about the rules, and I don't know what's fucking going on. But visual feast, like you said, is the word. I mean, this movie just another thing that you were saying about about Nolan. His movies just look cool. Like yeah. take everything away, and like like your point about Inception, like cool guys in fucking suits, looking slick back hair, machine I mean, this guns. This has that in spades too. It's that again. I mean, like Pattinson is, and again another, Pattinson, just doing Denholm Elliott the whole time. Well, Pattinson is is like McConaughey in Interstellar. He's like just be charming. Like, yeah. do your thing. And that's all they do, you know? Good and bromance between him and Washington. It's great. They're super funny together. Branagh's having a great time being oh my a Bond God. villain. Yeah, dude. There's I mean, one the, of the, the ultimate Bond villains. Villain. Now, also, terrible female character with Elizabeth Debicki, as much as I'd love to you wa- could cut look that at out her completely. In, in IMAX. Yeah. It was just like, ah, can you? Because she becomes the... The goal at the right. end is really saving her. But the emotional side of it doesn't land. No, God, yeah. no. Like, there's no emotion in that movie. My my biggest comparison to that is that if the rest of Nolan's movies are Bond movies, that's his Mission Impossible film. Mm. And I'm just, it's just him basically making an answer to the Mission Impossible franchise of like, you like cool shit? You like cool dudes rappelling off of buildings? Guess what? I crashed a truck in the dark night. In this one, I crash a fucking plane. Like, what do you want from me? Now people are going to fight backwards. Car chases are going to go backwards. Bullets are going to go backwards. Like Memento. It's just... It's all of his weird, like, tics and fetishes and fascinations and kind of the most De Palma-y of all of his movies because, like, he just does not fucking give a shit whether you, you follow it or not. He's just like, just look how awesome it is. Just 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 look. Look what I can do with a camera, man. He, it again, connects so strong, in such a strong way to Memento, right? I mean, again, this, like, main character who just, like, some people have found it pretentious and it is, but I love that he's called the protagonist because again, it's about storytelling. Like he's talking about filmmaking and storytelling. He doesn't and even try to hide it. I, I just, it's, I, it's not even subtext. It's just text. I, I fucking love it. I was like, I was in the theater. Cause I mean, we talked about this during the deal breakers episode, but like, this is the film that you and I risked our lives for because it was COVID. And I, I was like, as much as I rip on Nolan sometimes and I'm like, I'm not the biggest fan. It's like, I literally risked death. Like no, no I could vac- get COVID, but you know what? Fuck it. I'm watching this at 70 millimeter. No vac- now you can't even fucking find a 70 millimeter projector in Austin. I know. You have to go to San Antonio. 
I know. And I've heard that they've canceled like most of the screenings because they've had so many tech issues down there. Yep. Yeah. They, I was just reading what that article bummer. too. I know. I was the gonna... city we moved to does not exist anymore. Well, yeah, it used to be 70 down at uh, the Ritz, right? At the Ritz? Well, the one that we went to for Tenet was the Galaxy. Had oh, the, right. The Galaxy Highland had that 70 millimeter print. God. But no, I, this was a film that like, it was also the perfect timing. It was kind of, I think this film and the empty man were those two films. I think early COVID for you and me where they we just were, felt bigger uh, than everything that we'd gotten at that point. Yeah. And we were, they were shitting out like whatever they could, like they were dumping everything on streaming and it was just, a, just pretty much, it was, it was slim pickings. For Dune's the other one too. And Dune. Yeah. Um, but this one, it was just like, I oh, mean, I love tenant so much and I could just watch it over and over again. And it, it as a storyteller too, like even though it doesn't make sense, it just pulls you along. Like he, it's a vibe, man. He un, he understands um, momentum as a, as a storyteller. Like, like you can't start one of his films and then stop. If it you pulls you in, if you also want to come like continue the Michael Mann comparison, this is sort of like his Miami Vice. Yeah, like it folds again all of his fascinations in on themselves and doesn't give a shit whether or not you follow the narrative. And it's it just weird. Kind of dumps you in this world. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's a visual marvel. Like it's just Nolan being like, "All right, you know what? I'll do whatever I want." Fuck yeah! So we've arrived at Oppenheimer. Yes, sir. The movie that's making all the money right now. What did you think? I adored this it's so. Movie. Fucking good. We saw it together. Yes. Which was cool. And then I saw it again on IMAX. On IMAX. And um, there's just a lot, obviously a lot to say about this movie. Um, The first thing I, I just starting from the beginning and moving forward, I, I love the opening sequence of it's basically him as Dr. Frankenstein. It's the same scenes from like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein of like this young scientist, not understood by his peers or his teachers because he's too smart. He's smarter than everybody in the room. And I, the fucking dramatic imagery of him curled up in his bed because in his mind, he can see the inner world of like the quantum world. And he's like terrified of it. And there's just these spurts of like creation in his head. Very like tree of life. You know, I could just eat that shit up. Can I be real with you? Yeah. This stretch of the movie worried me. I'm not going to lie. Oh, I was in. The first like 10 minutes, I was like, oh, fuck. Is he beautiful minding us? Oh, this this could be a rough three hours. Thankfully, it's done much more artfully than, than Ron Howard or that film. Right. And to your point, there is a lot of Malachy imagery like thrown at us. But I did have the moment where I was like, oh, no, dude. I've already sat through this movie before and it fucking sucks. Like, what are we doing this? Thankfully, we do not. We transition pretty hard into a Men on a Mission movie. It becomes a genre film again. Yep. It's Tenet, it's Inception. It's Tenet, yep. it's Inception. It's all these things where only the heist is we're going to go out, build a town in the middle of the desert, and create a nuclear holocaust machine. And it's absolutely riveting while also being absolutely harrowing as it debates the morality of doing that. Yeah, it's... I was, I remember I, I saw someone write about um, the discourse around the film before it came out was similar to the discourse around Once My Time in Hollywood, where people were worried, like, oh my God, what is he going to do with the Sharon Tate thing? The and dumbest, th- and this was like, form 
of conversation. Right. It's like we, we haven't even seen it yet. And that, but I was like, yeah, let's give it a chance. And like people were like, is is Oppenheimer going to be pro nuke? It's like, are you fucking, are you a fucking moron? Yeah. No, it's, it's so, um, again, us talking about like the infernal machine, right? Of the, the wonder of creation, the wonder of like, just because you can, should you, you know? And it's so interesting to see his character, you know, go from this, like, I mean, these wonderful eyes of Killian Murphy. He's so expressive and amazing to go from this driven guy of like the sky's the limit, you know, with what we can do to, we got to put, we got to end this. And you can just see it. He reminds me, his character reminds me a lot of Michael Corleone, like the rise and fall, you know, this like the kind of wide eyedness of like the young Corleone to the kind of dead eyed at the end of the Godfather into like part two kind of remind me of that very American story. Well, you, you brought know? up the insider earlier and the, he reminds me of Jeffrey Wygant yeah. a lot about a guy only we never really see the young, bright idealist in Jeffrey Wygant, but it's about a guy who's literally chewed up by a system that he believed in yeah. and then spat out and left for dead. Well, cause yeah, he, I actually, it's funny you say that because I kept trying to think of the line from Insider while I was watching that Oppenheimer was like, it's when, when, um, Lowell and, and he are talking, he says, it makes you feel good putting what you know to work when he's the teacher, you know? And it's that idea of like, you've literally spent half your life killing people. Like your, your, your genius has allowed these cigarette companies to kill people. And I think Oppenheimer has that sense of responsibility, you know, on him of like, this is on me. You know, I'm the one who brought this together. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And it definitely emphasizes him wrestling with the responsibility. I mean, right down to like, they don't even tell him what they're going to use it for. And he hears the radio broadcast about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like, I I agree. The one thing I will say, not that the movie's pro nuke or whatever, it does go out of its way to try and vindicate him as this very smart, stoic uh, figure, important figure in American history without 100% acknowledging, like, because he, he obviously, like, Oppenheimer never apologized for what happened to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He, like, carried that to his grave that he wasn't fully responsible. And then I think it, it kind of asked the question, what are you responsible for when you create something versus what happens when it goes out into the world? And I've seen to, to take it back to us talking about dark Knight and how Batman begins felt so fresh when it first came out because we didn't have the Marvel industrial complex yet or the Cape industrial complex. There is a reading of this movie that's about Nolan dealing with the aftermath of creating the nuke that is superhero films oh, and wow. whether or not what he created was exploited by these huge corporations and now run into the ground and destroyed cinema itself. That's a really interesting reading. Cause like if you stick with the whole, like his movies are actually about movies themselves. I think it kind of works. Yeah. Cause he let the genie out of the bottle. Exactly. You know, and showed, and you well, can never put it back. Well, it's, I mean, it's like Spielberg with jaws, right? He like was the height of the new Hollywood and then killed the new Hollywood. Right? Exactly. You know, it's like he was the best. Which I of mean, it. Nolan came at the tail end of the new, new Hollywood during the nineties, the Weinstein yep, era exactly, independent yep. 
boom that we talked about. I mean, fucking the thing that we never hit upon with Memento is one of the big selling points. It was even in like the, some of the print ads and the trailer was that Soderbergh, yeah. the king of the indie film with, and Sundance with Sex, Lies, and Videotape was the one coming out being like, you got to see this fucking movie. You've never seen anything like Memento. Like this blew my mind. And then Nolan, like that doesn't exist anymore. You can't do what they did in the 90s anymore because the system doesn't allow you to do it. And part of what nuked the system were the comic book movies that, that you know Nolan reinvigorated with the Batman films. Wow. No, I think it's right, I think it's right on the money. You know, but obviously he's talking about more than just that, you know. There's sure, the, sure, sure. The, you know, but I think that's definitely, I love that reading. That's definitely there because he's... He is Oppenheimer, the misunderstood. He's bad with women. He's he's a master creator who thinks he's smarter than everybody else in the room. Like it's just he. Like again, Nolan. He's alienated because he's of that. alienated because of that. Nobody quite gets him. I mean, and then you know he's more or less blamed for this later for people misinterpreting his work. It's it's the thing that you talked about with like the backlash or being a contrarian to the Dark Knight, to where people now look at him and are like, "Is it really that good?" It's like, yes, it really was that fucking good, and it was also unique at the time. But nowadays, it feels run of the mill. Yeah, well, it's like the it's like the Citizen Kane thing. You you you're like, I don't get why it's graceful over time. It's like, well, you got to watch ten films from the year before, right, to understand. <laughs> or watch three films from the same year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or or the year after. <laughs> it just revolutionized the way cinema was made. But I mean, the other thing that I love about Oppenheimer to take it in a different direction is that I always I already called it an Oliver Stone film. But the other closest thing that this reminds me of is JFK. Like it's straight up Stone's paranoid, coked out uh, uh, duology of JFK and Nixon. The only thing that's really missing, if I'm being honest, is the manic paranoia and and belief that that uh, those movies kind of held because like mm. Stone was a true believer. He didn't believe necessarily the conspiracy theories, but he believed in conspiracy theories themselves. Yeah. And also there's he, more to the story. Exactly. Yeah. And then Nixon is also about kind of like with Oppenheimer, look at one of these monsters from history who is responsible for like straight up atrocities, but like reconsider them in the light of maybe their own personal flaws as human beings and also their ambitions as people. I like loved this movie because it took me back to a time when like these were regular and these were celebrated like big budget 2000 screen hits that went for Oscars too. And I mean, like we don't get that anymore. Remember we walked out of the theater and I was like, that's a big budget fucking drama. And I love it, but I'm like three hour long R rated drama it, about science as one of the biggest movies of the summer. And it's going to be one of the biggest movies of the summer. It's continually like it's sold out like everywhere. And you know, it's it, again, that's exciting for me though. And I, I, it's cool to see him pushing that envelope as a filmmaker for like, okay, where can I bring my fans? Where can I bring my audience? And like, people are really responding. I really, I haven't seen much discourse about people saying, Oh, I think it was boring. It's like, no, quite the opposite. Like again, the insider is a great, again, strangely a good comparison because like the insider is a, a master filmmaker taking what could have been a pretty dry, like true to life story. And he makes it a spy movie. 
I mean, he makes it this like thriller and, and it's a paranoid thriller that has life and death consequences. Now, Oppenheimer is a more, I think, on paper, you know, bombastic story than than The Insider. But biopics fucking suck. Like most biopics I've seen, I hate them. And except for weird ones like Oliver Stone does or like Spike Lee's like Malcolm X, you know, where they kind of blow, they blow the character up. Which felt of a piece with Stone's movies at the time. Exactly. They were very in that same and, and, and weirdly paced, weird, always weird last acts. Yeah. You know, all of them. And this is, you know, no, this is no different. You I know? mean, people complain about the last act of this movie, which we'll get to in a second. But I wonder how they would feel about the trial stuff in JFK. If all of a yeah. sudden, like basically everything, the, the, the Trinity test and the explosion is essentially in JFK, the Mr. X scene to where the whole movie shifts after that whole Donald Sutherland scene into being nothing but courtroom drama yeah. over and over again. Like this kind of does the same thing. And I wonder if modern audiences are just like, wait, what the fuck? It's, but it's also, again, to take it back to Nolan's fascinations, it's all about consequences, consequences of what you did and what you brought into the world. And what does that mean? Not only for you as an individual, but like the rest of history, frankly. Well, it, it, it also really is edited like reading a great nonfiction book because, you know, nonfiction books jump all over the place in time. They're not always chronological to say, well, this relates to this thing when he was under, you know, in trial 30 years later. And you, again, you the editing, right? You mash those two things together and you get like a, a kind of a different idea of this character versus just the, when he was young, he always had an idea, and then this happened, and then this happened. Like Robert Oppenheimer has to look back on his whole <laughs> wife, <laughs> which is exactly what happened. On his whole life before he, he applies for a security <laughs> clearance, you know. But it's what do you think? We talked about this a little bit when we saw the film, but like, do you think that his star-studded casting hurts or helps this film? Helps. Okay. 100%. Because here, here's the argument for it. Because I've seen other people make yeah. this point too that it's distracting whenever yeah. like, people keep floating in and out of scenes and it's like, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. It adheres to the Roger Corman theory of every character should be a face that you remember. Mm. It should all be played by somebody that you recognize. And I also think that like if these were just a bunch of faceless British actors from the theater that we have no relationship to, we would get bored pretty quick and you yeah. might be able to actually make the Dunkirk argument against it is that they all become faceless, anonymous white guys. We're here actually having actors that we have a relationship to adds a gravity to every scene and every little bit of information that they, they, they kind of impart on J Robert Oppenheimer's life because like, one of the greatest examples of this is one of the guys who I like the least, which is Rami Malek, <laughs> yeah. who like the first couple times he shows up on screen, he's basically there for, for Oppie to fucking punk him out and like slap a clipboard out of his hands. And I'm like, did they really hire Rami Malek for this? But then he comes back at the end and gets one of the most moving speeches of the movie. And I think... That's Nolan recognizing the power. Because we haven't even talked about Nolan's 
uh, we, we, we've gone in depth about all of his, his technical aptitude and everything, but like, he's obviously amazing with actors because not only does he get some of the greatest actors and movie stars like that we've ever seen, you know, appear in all of his movies. He has guys like Christian Bale and Tom Hardy and Michael Caine and Killian Murphy come back. And whether it's like a Batman movie or Inception, or Oppenheimer, like, they're like, yeah, whatever Chris is doing, like, I'm signing up because I'm in, and I think that he recognizes the power of having a great face and having a, a, a performer that we have a relationship to and what that means when they come in to basically just be like, the bomb is bad, have you considered that? Gotta go, and then, like, or, like, Casey Affleck showing up out of nowhere and being like, I took him out onto the boat. And interrogated him in the Russian style. And I like he's so good for like two scenes. And I'm like, what is the Russian style? Tell me more. This is fucked up. You're so ominous. Also, Casey Affleck, weren't you canceled? <laughs> yeah, no, it's um I, I agree. I think that like it's a very classic cinema kind of thing to do. Like you watch any classic Hollywood and like every character is someone you know. Well, to take it back to also JFK and Nixon too, like it's why like John Candy shows up on the stage being like, you got the wrong dude, daddy. o and like doing like bebop, like digital jazz and shit or like, you know, fucking that, that some of the scenes even cut out of Nixon when you have um, Sam Watterson playing the oh. director of the CIA and like his eyes going black and doing the like John Milton speech about from paradise lost to Richard Nixon. Like, it's just, you know, it, like, like Oliver Stone or like David Lean or like these guys who made these big bombastic like movies, like people showed up in every role. Like Jack Lemon is, is in the opening scene of JFK never to be seen again in the rest of the movie or seen like once or whatever. You know what I mean? It's well, and Michael just, Mann's the same way. I mean, honestly, like the beginning of collateral Jason Statham says, good luck at have a good time in LA. Never seen again, you know? Or uh, Miami Vice is a great example of this, of bringing someone like John Hawks in to do three scenes, bringing Eddie Marzan in in Miami Vice to do a scene, you know, having Justin Theroux just be fucking cool in the background (laughs) as one of the team members. (laughs) Like, it's just, he knows, like, it's the understanding that, like, you could do it this way with a bunch of anonymous people and not instantly have an emotional connection with the audience. Or you could do it this other way with all these guys that everybody recognizes and instantly they perk up and go for three hours. Mind you, they perk up and go, mm? yeah, is that a scars guard? I think that is, yeah, scar, you know, it's like, a Pavlovian response almost. No, that's a, that's a good point. And I, I think that you were kind of saying before, but like, that Damon's kind of in a different movie. Oh my God, Matt Damon in this movie. But at the same time, like he is, he is on that same wavelength of this classic movie, movie star thing. He's doing like, this is a character that Clark Gable would have played back in the day. You or, know? Paul or Paul Newman Fat Man and Little Boy. Yeah, just showing up and like, everyone likes him. And, and say one about the Damon as a performer, he's a very likable actor. Well, he's and like, here's he's like the Tom other Hanks thing too, that way, you know? is that, after Interstellar, where he basically takes Matt Damon's Martian character and makes him the evil version of that, he knows how to fuck with these movie star personas and everything. And, like, if somebody's going to sell this fucking nerd 
on coming in and using his big ass brain in the service of the U.S. military. It's going to be nice guy Matt Damon and his mustache being like, this is very important and we believe in you. And you know what? I, with all my movie star charisma, think that you should be the guy. We choose you. Like, I would buy that for a dollar. Totally. No, I, I think he works really well in this film. But I mean... Killian, he dials it up a bit. Oh, but. I, and he's, he's again, he's he's at full charm mode, too. I mean, yeah. like, and leading to the moment where he testifies, and they, again, a scene you cut back to, you think he's going to go against Oppenheimer to that, you know, confession scene, or the uh, and he ends up siding with him. You know, again, it's these ways that Nolan will, he'll cut out of a scene. I love how he does that. It's like, oh, wait. And he you leaves you back, hanging. You know, and again, they again the great reveal for you know uh, Downey Jr. I love it's a very noir thing of like actually the whole time they've been talking, the real villain's been you know in the wings over here. It's the age old tactic of setting up questions and providing answers no, later. Exactly. But the other I think ingenious casting move is Robert Downey Jr. here. Exactly. To also return to the idea of this being a screed against the Marvel movies. What better way than to cast Tony Stark the king as the champion of the military industrial complex? Like it again, subtext is text almost. I do. I, I didn't even see that because I mean, you're, I think you're totally around the money, but like I was just seeing for Downey's part, he's like, I'm trying to slough off Stark, you know, like this is my opportunity to, enter the next phase of my life. And this is how to burn that down to behind con- me to connect back to stone. You know who Downey reminded me the most of, and I, I, I mean, I don't care about anybody else's opinion, but it's like, he reminded me of James Woods like mm-hmm. a lot in this movie. He's so sinewy and menacing yeah. and s- just kind just of ugly. slithers <laughs> through scenes. Yeah. Has that weird hairline almost looks like he's covered in a sheen of like grease sometimes. Like he's got a real woods thing going on. Yeah. He's, he's so good in this. And then, um, and Alden Eichenreich is awesome in this. Like he's doing a real Sorkin-y thing. Oh, you took the, sorry. The, yeah. He, I heard somebody on another podcast basically be like, he's playing the, the Allison Janney role. Oh, right. Where, yeah. where she's the one who comes in and basically just tells all the mean dudes, like what they, they are basically wrong about. Like he's fucking awesome in this. Yeah. I hope I like, I really hope that Alden, I can write between this and there was a movie out of, of Sundance called fair play. Oh, are those I good? Believe, yeah. That he's really, really good. in. I mean, it's, it's a rough movie. It's, it's pretty harsh by the end. It reminded me a lot of like Neil LeBute, mm. but like it's, he's real fucking good in it. And I'd love to see him like kind of reclaim himself after more or less getting no, again, no pun intended, but shot into the black hole after solo. Yeah. I mean, again, not Marvel, but the star Wars complex destroyed yeah. him. And <laughs> again, you want to read more, another opportunity for a guy to kind of find his way out of that muck. I mean, Dane DeHaan shows up in this first, like three scenes and is awesome. Yep. Um, Kenneth Branagh comes back again and gets to do his tenant accent and as Neil Spohr. Like, it's just, it's fucking really, really good. What do you think of Tom Conti as uh, uh, Einstein? To, for me, that's the only too cute part of the movie, but I still like it a lot. Because Tom Conti is also in um, Dark Knight Rises. Correct. Right? Um, it, I, it's, it's tough because 
I don't wish the part of Einstein upon anyone. I think Einstein is just too well known a person. He's he's almost like a classic meme, or like you playing know? Elvis. Yeah, it's just this this person. We all have an idea of what, and he's so goofy looking as a character no matter what it's like how do you have someone like it's that movie iq with walter Matthau, which i actually like a lot you know is but that the one with meg ryan yeah yeah, the, yeah. like little romantic comedy mm-hmm. I, I remember liking that yeah. movie too it's a very again a cute movie and tim robbins right i think so yeah yeah i mean the moral of the story is that you should see oppenheimer you should see it on the biggest screen possible and you sh- should like give it money so that we can continue to get movies like these, because again, this feels like a big event that marks hopefully a sea change at the end of the, the Marvel reign of terror. There's, there's a lot of discussion. And I was thinking this lately, even before these came out and I read an article about it too, is like, this feels like the beginning of the new, new Hollywood that we're, we're again, these are big movies, but we're seeing the Marvel is the big biblical epics that started to flop at the end of the sixties and um, the fact that, like, also Asteroid City was a monster hit, like, for the, for its budget. Like, people want auteur cinema. Like, they do. They, everyone, everyone I know is like, oh, my God, I'm going to see all those fucking movies. I'm so excited because... And they'll be like, well, I saw the Marvel one. They're never excited about it anymore. So they feel the difference. Like, everyone knows the difference. Meanwhile, the trailer for, like, the Marvels comes and goes, and everybody's like, yeah, I don't care. Does anybody remember a frame from Captain Marvel? I certainly do not. No, seriously. You want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. Questions about Chris Nolan's Oppenheimer. Well, really just Chris Nolan himself, I would say, in his filmography. Not his personal life. I don't think there's a whole lot happening there behind beyond like his wife and his (laughs) children. But Martin, top three Nolan movies. Go. So number three would be Prestige. Um, Interesting. I just, I love, I just, I don't know, I, I, I still love the magic trick stuff. You know, I, I said earlier, it doesn't hold up as much as before when I first loved it, but I just think it's kind of an outlier in his, in terms of style, you know, and he did a lot of like, well, I first did a lot of um, natural light photography, very like Barry Lyndon kind of style. Um, I love just the looking at the world of it. Um, so that's going to be three. Um, number two would be, um, 
Uh, Batman Begins would be number two for me. So you prefer Begins to Dark Knight? I do. I think Dark Knight, in a lot of ways, is a better film. Like, it's just, it's more, like, it's definitely deeper in a lot of ways. And I think that, you know, Ledger obviously raises it, like, ten points. Um, He's amazing in it. Begins, I think, is just a really fun, just straight-up action and thriller. Like... I when I revisited begins for this podcast, I forgot how it moves like a fucking bullet yeah. too. Like you're back in Gotham with Bruce Wayne before you know it, and then before you know it, like it's the the attack with Scarecrow and Ra's al Ghul and and you know Carmine Falcone and everything, and then the movie's over, and you're like, God damn, that was two hours and twenty minutes. Like he just fires that thing through a fucking cannon. It's it's pretty remarkable. It's it's just really fun too. Out of the three films he did, the three Batman films, like it's the most fun. It's the lightest. It's it's dark, but it's still the lightest tone, I think, of the three. Yeah. Um, it doesn't even really go for any of the subtextual stuff no. that Dark Knight's going for. Like it just is like you know this the one thing I will say that I respect about it more uh, more and more as time goes on, even though we do see Batman's parents get killed and it is quote unquote an origin story. It kind of brushes past that with like a scene and is more just like, here's this rich dude trekking through the fucking Alps to find this crazy like league of shadows. And that like, shit's so fucking We're just cool. kind of like thrown right in. And then like ninjas show up. Like it's, it's like two shades away from being just a big budget canon movie at certain points. Like it's, it's pretty fucking awesome. And the fact that it moves like a fucking freight train only helps. It's just, it's pulpier than both dark Knight and dark Knight rises too. It's just a, it's definitely a pulpier movie. I feel like it is not pulpier than dark Knight rises. Okay. Whoa, whoa. Dark Knight rises is a, is practically a fucking GI Joe cartoon. <laughs> Like Jesus Christ, dude! That movie's out of its fucking mind. They're they're racing to find a nuclear bomb in Gotham at the end. Bane blows up a football stadium. A, 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 the Batwing carries a nuclear weapon into the ocean okay. at the end. That Fair. movie is stupid as fuck, and I like it for that. Well, it is, but but it also ha- at the same time, all it's missing is shark repellent. But it also though does get lost in thematic stuff. Like it's trying to have, oh, it, has, yeah. it has more on its mind. It's a real cake and eat it too movie. Yeah. Uh, but number one would be uh, inception. I mean, we said it before. That's my number one too. I, yeah. I just don't think, uh, and tenant is probably number four. It would probably, it would, or it might switch with prestige depending, you know, uh, I just love tenant so much, but yeah, inception is fucking rules, man. And I think it's the most, it's where it all works the best. It's the right amount of emotion. The Leo stuff works. Um, it's just one of his most fun too. It just, it continues. He's like, what next? And even rewatching, I just always forget. Oh, I forgot this part. Oh fuck. You know, every time I see it. Inception. Oppenheimer. Wow. Dark Knight. Wow. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's just, Eh, maybe I don't know with Dunkirk being a close fourth. Okay. After that, I want to put Dunkirk above Dark Knight, but I've just watched Dark Knight so many fucking times. Yeah. It's and it's still one of the only superhero movies despite my not only superhero fatigue, but like I've just given up on them completely. Still going back and watching Batman Begins and Dark Knight, I'm like, "Oh, that's right. This is what happens when you let a real fucking filmmaker yeah. like make these and get out of his way." Totally. So, double feature. Um, for Oppenheimer, 
Um, I would do the right stuff. Um, that's a good one. I thought of that movie too. I and what I right stuff is hands down top ten favorite film for me. I adore the right stuff. I love like the mythic, obviously a mythic Americana. I mean, the shot of the shot of fucking. Um, Jaeger riding his horse and he finds the X, the X one being uh, fueled up and it's like fire belching out its back. It's like a dragon waiting to be slain. Yeah. And it's just like Philip Kaufman goes all the way with like the mythic hero stuff in it. But it also is about like, like the ingenuity of Americans. Right. And like, and, and it's has a happier ending because there's a sense of the space race is more, you know, hopeful, right? It ends on a sense of like, and the sky's the limit. It's wonder yeah. instead of doom. Ex- it's, the, exactly. it's the wonder that that progress and technological adva- advancements can bestow upon human beings where Oppenheimer is the exact opposite of that. Well, I mean, it's it's so interesting that, I mean, I know they're doing kind of, Oppenheimer has that like wink of like, who was the guy who voted against you? Oh, it was this young senator, JFK, right? Oh and, my God, that's the Robin of yeah. Oppenheimer when you find out that fucking... Uh, I like that name, Robin, JFK. Robin, yeah, it's like, oh, get it, guys? But what's interesting though is... Alden Eichenreich just turns to the, the 70 millimeter camera and winks. <laughs> But like, you know, JFK is this like backbone of like, that's his America in the right stuff, right? Of like, we're going to do things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. It's like, that's the aftermath once we've, you know, of the bomb is the next step is the wonder of like, what, how can we use our technology to do these great things? Um, and I just think also the, like, again, this like mythic American tale of what can we do when we all put our heads together again, without the theme of doom and more the theme of hope. Uh, and of wonder. What's your double feature? It's hard not to just say Nixon. Yeah. JFK. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to go with Nixon so that I can take a minute to vamp and, and really advocate for a movie that I feel like is still wildly underseen, even in Stone's filmography. I know it's a bit unwieldy for many people because it's almost four hours long, especially if you watch like the director's cut version of it that puts in like the Sam Waterston, like CIA stuff and a couple other scenes, but like it again feels like a movie about what we can do when we misplace power. And in Nixon's case, we, we elect a total monster who is beaten time, not to bring up JFK again, but like is beaten time and again by JFK to the the point of considering the Kennedys like mortal Eve, like enemies. Um, It dives into the conspiracy theory that he might've been in the room with like Texas oil men who, who conspired with the mafia to have Kennedy killed in Dallas, like more or less full on indicts Nixon as like a co-conspirator and then moves on to, to, uh, Richard Nixon's like paranoid end with the Watergate tapes and, and praying with, with Kissinger. Uh, and it's just such a huge operatic melodramatic film that has all of stones, like wild acid trip, cocaine paranoia flourishes to them. Like, it jumps stock from black and white to, to hyper, almost like Douglas Serkian, like colors, all of the, like the, have you seen it before? I've never seen it. Dude, dude. 
It's just I you're, think you're, it's you're selling me on. I it, think though. it's his true masterpiece. Wow, I, like it's my favorite. Well, JFK is my favorite Oliver Stone movie, but this is the one that every time I watch it, I go, "Fuck, man, is this the one?" Joan Allen uh, as as Nixon's uh, mm. as Pat Nixon is just tremendous. James Woods shows up again as it plays as a great companion piece to K- JFK, to where it's if JFK uh, leads you. Out into the light with with Jim Garrison's kind of final monologue talking about like and even like that final scrolling text where it's like it's up to the youth to seek out, you know, the truth that's essentially out there. It basically created Fox Mulder. But like (laughs) um, Nixon is the darker less optimistic side that probably would play better with Oppenheimer of like the moment that we gave Richard Nixon power is when we gave our country to the enemy and the people who wanted to destroy it as much as they did like, you know, participate in government and everything and, and, and use it to, to make them powerful human beings. And frankly, just fucking Anthony Hopkins as Richard Nixon, which was a, a very controversial choice at the, at the time because he really does not look anything like him whatsoever, but his performance, it is is like, it runs the gap, the, just the complete gamut of like making him a villain, making him um, like emotionally resonant, making him relatable uh, to like actually breaking your heart for Richard Nixon by the end. And, and really psychologically like it, it's as much a, a psychological profile of a, a, a man that stone never quite presents as quote unquote misunderstood. Like he, he's very like clear on the fact that this is still a bad fucking guy, but like it, it definitely gets at the heart and the mind of like what makes a Richard Nixon or Richard Nixon and what makes him still human. And it's just, it's a, it's a towering achievement, and I can't yeah. recommend it, you know, high enough. Now, watching it back to back with Oppenheimer as a double feature would be seven fucking hours of your day, so you need a couple pee breaks. But I highly recommend that movie. Hell yeah, man! Now we usually do remake series right here, but like that obviously doesn't really apply in this case. So let's keep it kind of basic, bitch, and say, what do you want Nolan to do next? I want him to go back to like an action film. I, I, I think that I like him the most when he's in like sci-fi spy. Like make like an Inception or ten. Yeah. It feels like that's what comes next because he does alternate now to where like, okay, we did a Batman movie, so I'll do The Prestige. Yeah. I'll do an interstellar and now I'll do a Dunkirk. Like he almost, it's almost like now veering between the pulp and the serious, like, like yeah. hyper literate, like historical lessons that he wants to bestow upon you. So I think that does come next. Yeah. And I hope it does. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering it's, it's weird. Cause like you have, you know, dreams for inception, you have time travel, his first straight up film about time travel, with um, I guess like sorry, Interstellar does too, but really about time travel with um, with Tenet. But I wonder what the next one, like what's the next frontier of of you know sci-fi? Because I like how he always bases it in science. It's that you know he likes to kind of like mire it in like technology, like you said, magic and science kind of coming together. But I wonder what it would be. Maybe like multi-dimensional stuff. 
Like the the multiverse. Pass. The, yeah. Please, I don't want Nolan's multiverse. No, I don't either. I'm just saying, like, I'm just putting an idea out. You know, like no more multiverse movies. <laughs> Moratorium on the multiverse. Yeah, yeah. But he would do something weird with it, and it wouldn't be like. Yeah, I hope I hope we don't get that. But it's going to be something quantum. It's going to be something like super. He's going to read some article and like fucking Wired, or like some science, you know, science journal. Where he's like, oh, that's my next movie. It's possible. Yeah. I want him to make Heat 2. <laughs> oh, fuck. Like, I I had, I got stoned the other day and was just looking at the books on my shelf. And I don't know why the thought came to me, but I was just like, if Nolan is going to do a one for them type thing. Now he really doesn't have to, especially after the massive success of Oppenheimer. Yeah. Like, that was my one worry going into this one after Tenant. I don't want to say underperformed. Because it still almost did like what four hundred million worldwide. Like people yeah. try to sell you on that movie being a failure, and it's like it really wasn't. Also, like to the next person who calls this movie a cult movie, I will come to your house personally and beat the shit out of you. <laughs> I will beat the shit out of you in front of your mom and your whole family, and the whole time I'll be screaming at you. Tenant is not a cult movie, while I bludgeon you in front of your mom. Because it's not a fucking cult movie. It's, it made almost four. I think it made over four hundred million dollars at the box office. That that instantly disqualifies it as being a cult movie. Yeah. Sorry, in the old days, this would just be called a movie's lifespan. You saw it on video at home <laughs> because you didn't make it to the theater. That's just part of like of the life cycle of a movie. Sorry, guys. But no, I was thinking like Heat Two. I don't think man can make it anymore. Yeah. He's 9,000 years old. <laughs> Methuselah makes heat too. From from all accounts, can't hear. Oh, really? And like, well, that's what some people have said who have worked on like the sound editing and stuff. Now, this is talking out of class a little bit, I want to say. But why the mixes from Public Enemies on Ooh. are like a little wonky and weird is because he actually has issues with his own hearing but at the same time is still such an exacting like you know despot when it comes to making his movies that like he doesn't let anybody else like wrestle control from him so mm. it might produce a, a subpar experience on some ends but like i just don't think I just don't think Michael Mann has it in him. Now, will Warner Brothers or any other studio just throw buckets of money at him to make Heat 2, especially if Adam Driver comes back for the Neil McCauley role? And, um, and if Ferrari, Austin Ferrari Butler, does well. Yeah. Well, Ferrari does well. And then Austin Butler uh, you know, does the Val Kilmer role. Yeah. Like, sure. Like, he'll get all the money and he'll make it. But at the same time... I'd love to see Nolan do Heat too. I just had that thought of doing the globe hopping, episodic, greatest hits of Michael Mann without actually having to do Mann. It's, it would, again, allow Christopher Nolan to kind of do his own thing. But think about Chris Nolan shooting that fucking uh, Mexican cartel, like, motel, like, oh heist sequence. God, yeah. Or, like, the freeway chase that happens at the end or the giant machine gun battle that they orchestrate for the the, the, the climax of the, the book. Or, like, 
it's just man, all the the old Vincent Hanna stuff, the Mexico stuff, the flashback to the '80s stuff, where where we um, it is like an origin story in a weird way for like Neil McCauley. Like it's just like it would allow him to play in a sandbox of a guy he obviously like loves to death and do justice. It's like. It would be his Steven Spielberg making AI moment. Yeah. Of like, let Nolan do Heat 2 because it's like paying homage to his master, one of his masters or his heroes who who uh, can't do it anymore. Where Kubrick passed, now man's just too old. Now fucking let, let Nolan fire Heat 2 off into the sun. And I bet you that movie. And also like, imagine if you read that in the trades and the Hollywood reporter and they were like, Chris Nolan signs on to Heat 2. You know, Warner Brothers or who, I think it's a, it would yep. be a Warner Brother property is that they would just be like, you can have a blank check. You can have as much money as possible. Like Adam Driver would be in it. Like who would Killian Murphy play in in the Heat universe? Who like would? Uh, but we haven't even touched on Gary Oldman yeah. playing As fucking Truman, Truman yeah. and basically being like "fuck you, nerd." <laughs> but like who would Gary Oldman play in the Heat universe? Ooh, yeah, um, like you could bring. Dude, Tom Hardy could play the bad dude. Tom Hardy could the, be the ball yeah. killer guy. He could come back. You could bring like Joseph Gordon-Levitt back, and also, frankly, like he's already done. The Vincent Hanna character with Pacino, and he would be able to work with him again. And it would probably be like a slightly de-aged Pacino, which would probably rule Nolan out because he doesn't work yeah. with that kind of technology. But like, I don't know, dude. It's the more I think about it, it's it's a good ass idea. That would be awesome. Other other filmmaker I think who would do Heat Two is Denis Villeneuve, just because like I think of Sicario has so much stylistically man and also just like his ability to do that kind of all that military tech stuff would be, he could handle that very well. I think where he would miss the mark where Nolan would nail it is that Nolan can do melodrama better than Denis. Denis not very good at big emotional melodrama. And like, that's one of the most entertaining fucking parts of, uh, Heat too is that even on the page, it has those big heart swelling melodramatic Michael Mann moments yeah. of like Chris walking out into the desert on a cell phone to tell Charlene goodbye and like or when he has sex with her on the front of the car on the overlooking front of the Vegas car, like yeah. it's straight out of Miami Vice or like all of the Hong Kong boat ride stuff where he falls in love with like the yeah. Asian gangster and like it's just. I don't know, man. Like I did, the again, the more I I think of what Chris Nolan's version of that movie would be, the more I'm just like, why let anybody else <laughs> do it? Just let him do it. So, final question: Face Melter for Oppenheimer? Yay, nay? Uh, I'd say nay. I mean, it's it, it's great. Um, I and it moves very well, but it's still a dramatic biopic and there are scenes that I think are face melting, but as a whole, that's, that was going to be my argument. I would tell you that the Trinity test, yes, the first nuclear bomb is one of the greatest and will go down as like, when you talk about like the right stuff or, or some of the dark Knight, uh, the dark Knight set pieces and iconic like movie moments is that it's just like, 
people are going to talk about the Oppenheimer like explosion for a long, long time because it just, it really was face melting. You just sat there and like the fact that he tried to physically recreate a nuclear explosion practically and then film it. And the thing that they do with the sound design where it goes off, the delay, it's total silence. And then yeah, the delay of boom and it just hits you. And when you're sitting in that IMAX theater and those speakers are around you and it just blows your fucking, you jumped. Yeah. Like I was like, (laughs) Holy shit. Like it's just, it's so fucking awesome. Like it borders on being a face melter, but yeah. Well, here's the thing. I would consider JFK a face melter. Every time I watch it, I can't believe the energy that that movie distills for three hours plus. And Oppenheimer does come kind of close. So, like, I think it borders on one. Yeah, I like that. Well, Martin, this has been great. I'm glad the movies are back. I'm glad we could record again for the first time in forever. I apologize. It's mostly on me for my stupid job. But what do we have for him next time? Oh, it's um, getting a, getting a spooky, well, a spooky season. Yeah, you know? well, it's always spooky season for us. So. We're gonna talk about some Dracula. Draculas. Yeah, they're gonna rise from the grave. But you gotta tune in to Secret Handshake to see if I keep doing the stupid fucking voice as I talk about Dracula. Bye. See ya. I run away and then you prance If I showed her how to 